Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. This morning's passage out of Mark, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, is certainly about Christian parents and their children. And we are going to talk about that, uh, that aspect of the passage. But this passage really speaks to all Christians, and not just because all Christians have some stake in uh, the raising up of the next generation of saints within the church, but actually Jesus here gives a rule of the kingdom that applies to all of us. In verse 15, Jesus says, Anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child shall not enter. And so the question is, what is it about children that every Christian must imitate? What makes children models of how we are to enter the kingdom? How do we receive the kingdom like a child? What's it mean to be childlike in this way? Obviously, the Bible rejects a kind of childishness that we need to outgrow as we mature. But what is it about children that we're being pointed to here as the way in which we are to receive God's kingdom? Uh, some people have said that it must be the innocence of children that Jesus is pointing to. Now, obviously, those people never had kids. <laughs> Because you don't have to be a parent for very long to realize your child is not innocent. Kids aren't innocent. And of course, we know too from the rest of Scripture, you don't have to be innocent to enter the kingdom of God. That's impossible for us. We're all born sinners. We might not be natural born killers, but we're certainly natural born sinners. We fell on our first father, Adam, and so innocence can't be what this is about. Others look for certain... Uh, childlike virtues, perhaps humility or teachableness. And uh, there may be a grain of truth in this, but I think it still misses the point. And if you go that direction with the passage, you actually contradict so much in the rest of Scripture because you would be implying that we could perhaps earn the kingdom ourselves, achieve the kingdom ourselves by possessing certain qualities. And certainly that's not what Jesus meant to teach. What Jesus seems to have in view here is the condition, or you could say the status of children. It's not so much that you have to become childlike in terms of imitating something about children, but you have to recognize that you're really not any different from children. Before God, you are just as dependent, just as powerless, just as poor, just as helpless as any baby. Uh, I think we can get a better idea of what Jesus means if we look at the surrounding passages. I think this story is placed within Mark's Gospel where it is for a reason. It is where it is to set up a contract. So right before this teaching on children and how we have to receive the kingdom like children, in the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 10, Jesus teaches on marriage and divorce. And he rejects what we could call no-fault divorce. Why? Well, in part because no-fault divorce let powerful men take advantage of weak women. And Jesus wants to put an end to that. And so he says, he teaches, 
A man is bound to his wife and cannot leave her for any reason he might desire. And in teaching this, Jesus effectively nullified the power that men in that culture had. He took away the man's leverage and protected the weaker vessel, the woman. Now, in Matthew's account, the disciples hear this teaching and they say, wow, this is true. Wouldn't it be better to just not get married at all? That is to say, if getting married means, as a man, giving up my power and my rights, basically making me equal to the one I'm marrying, the the woman I'm marrying, then why bother with it? Why get married? That's how the disciples look at this. In the story immediately after this teaching on children, we have the story of uh, a man known as the rich young ruler who comes asking Jesus about eternal life. And he looks like a really hot prospect for the kingdom. Just the kind of guy you'd want to sign up for your kingdom movement, right? Well, not so fast. Jesus tells the man to go sell everything. And the man can't do it. He has great possessions and he's not willing to part with them. And it's clear this is because he sees his wealth as his power. And so to give away his wealth to the poor would mean becoming powerless just like the poor. It would put him on the same footing as the poor. And he won't have that, and so he goes away sad. And then Jesus remarks how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And again, this provokes a question on the part of the disciples. They say, who then can be saved? That is, if the wealthy can't be saved, if it's hard for the powerful to be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In other words, what Jesus is teaching is that entering the kingdom is beyond man's possibilities. It's beyond man's powers. It's, humanly speaking, impossible. Indeed, for Jesus, human power is not a help to entering the kingdom. It's actually a hindrance. It actually gets in the way. Because only those who know they are poor and powerless and helpless, only those who will see themselves in this way, who will utterly rely upon God, can be saved. Those are the only ones who can enter the kingdom of God. The poor are economically powerless, but only those who recognize they are spiritually poor, that is to say spiritually powerless, can inherit the riches of the kingdom. Now, I think Jesus is really making the same point with children here in our passage this morning. This is a recurring theme in this part of Mark's gospel that when it comes to the kingdom of God, human wealth and human power and human status don't amount to anything. We are all poor before God. We are all weak and helpless before God. The reason you must receive the kingdom like a child is because everyone knows children can't do anything for themselves. They can't achieve. They can only receive. They can't do. They can only be done for. They are weak. They are helpless. They are powerless. But what is true of children physically is true of us all spiritually. What is true of children economically is true of all of us spiritually. You see in this passage here that the children can't even come to Jesus on their own. They have to be 
brought to Jesus. They have to be carried to Jesus. They can't come on their own because they're helpless. They're dependent. And that really, I think, is the point of the comparison. Children are a picture of everyone who is saved. They can't do it on their own. They can't take care of themselves. They can't earn anything. They have nothing. They bring nothing. They must receive everything. For a child, self-salvation is obviously an impossibility. And so it is for all who would be saved. To receive the kingdom as a child is to receive it as an unearned, undeserved gift. Do you realize that you cannot get to Jesus on your own. That you must be brought to Jesus. You must be carried. You can't clean yourself up. You can't provide for yourself. You have to see yourself as utterly poor and utterly dependent. And when you come to see yourself as spiritually just as helpless and needy as a baby, then you're not far from the kingdom. Jesus wanted the rich young ruler to give up his power in order to become like a child. To become poor like a child. Helpless and weak like a child so that he might enter the kingdom. And by the way, we're, we're talking about entering the kingdom here in salvation. It's very clear throughout this part of Mark's Gospel that entering the kingdom just is salvation. Entering the kingdom or receiving the kingdom is synonymous with salvation. You see that especially if you look at chapter 10, verses 25 and 26, which in one place talks about entering the kingdom, and then the very next verse talks about being saved. And it's clear they're talking about the same thing. So only those who see themselves as helpless and weak and powerless as children can be saved, can enter the kingdom. When you see this wider context, that this is really what's going on, you can understand why Jesus got so angry with His disciples. When they tried to keep children away from Him, they were actually obstructing the real meaning of the kingdom. They were obscuring the real shape of the kingdom. Here you have these parents who are seeking to bring their children to Jesus that their, that their children might receive His touch and His blessing. And the disciples rebuke those parents and try to push them away. And in response, Jesus rebukes the disciples and welcomes the children in. Some have suggested perhaps the disciples were just trying to keep children away because they figured Jesus had more important things to do. And so the disciples see themselves as kind of gatekeepers for Jesus, almost like His bodyguards. They're bouncers to keep away the unimportant and the undesirable. And they're going to protect Jesus from the crush of the crowd. They probably saw themselves as doing a good thing, keeping Jesus from being overrun and exhausted by the swelling crowds the multitudes who are trying to get to Him. not sure that's totally the case because in the very next story, we see the disciples were fine with this rich, powerful guy having access to Jesus. They didn't try to keep Him away. But not so with children. They keep the children away. They want to put up a fence between Jesus and and the children, probably thinking, what could children possibly contribute to the cause? How can they help with our kingdom movement? What are they going to add to what we're doing? But again, this, this enrages Jesus. This incenses Jesus. It makes Jesus indignant and angry 
because it means His own disciples have a distorted view of the kingdom. And that distorted view of the kingdom produces a distorted view of the children. You could turn that around and say your view of children is a good litmus test for how you understand the kingdom. The disciples dream of a kingdom populated by the rich and the powerful. For them, the kingdom belongs to the grown-ups, the rich, the righteous, the self-sufficient, the powerful. And that's why Jesus gets so angry. Because after all this time, even their discussions about greatness, even Jesus taking a child into His lap to show them what true greatness is in the previous chapter, the disciples still have it backwards. They don't understand what true greatness is. They don't understand, they don't grasp the shape of Jesus' kingdom. The lesson here for all of us is clear. You either receive the kingdom as a child or you will not receive it at all. You receive the kingdom as a gift or not at all. Children bring nothing. They receive everything. We must see that's true of us as well. But this passage does more than simply use poor, weak, helpless children as a kind of parable of the Gospel. A parable of salvation. Children certainly are a mirror of our condition before God, of our spiritual status before God. But this passage also does something else for us. I think this passage also provides a Christian, I would say it provides Christian parents a framework for raising their children. It gives Christian parents a paradigm for how to regard and raise the children God gives them. And we need to look at this as well. It's no accident that in Mark 10, Jesus teaches on marriage and divorce and then follows that up by teaching on parenting. We're getting Jesus' theology of the family. And it's very practical theology. Now let's be clear. When Jesus says here of these children... To such belongs the kingdom of God. He's not talking about all children. Children in general. Children indiscriminately. He's talking about what we, in the Presbyterian tradition at least, typically call covenant children. These are children with at least one believing parent. And you see that here because these are children whose parents want to bring them To Jesus. That's what's most remarkable about this. These are parents who desire to get their children to Jesus. They want their children to have contact with Jesus. So important. You know, Christian and non-Christian parents no doubt share many things in common. Generally speaking, both Christian and non-Christian parents are going to want children who are healthy and who are well-educated. They're going to want children who stay off drugs and stay out of jail. Children who will grow up to get happily married and have good jobs. Those are all good goals to have for your children, but none of those goals set apart Christian parents from their non-Christian counterparts. This passage is about what is most fundamental, most central, most foundational for Christian parents. What is unique about Christian parenting is that Christian Parents desire to bring their children to Jesus. 
Or to put it another way, Jesus welcomes the children of Christian parents into his presence and enfolds them into his kingdom. So interesting what he does here. He takes these children into his arms. Isaiah 40, verse 11, the prophet says, The Lord gathers his little lambs into his arms and carries them on his chest and gently leads those who are young. Here Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, taking these little lambs into His arms and holding them against His chest. The arms of Jesus are the arms of God embracing His children as His little lamb. Later in uh, this passage, we learn that Jesus touches these Children. He lays his hands on them. Interestingly, later in Isaiah, Isaiah 64 says, You, O Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. Your hand formed us. Here it is. The very hands that created the world. The hands of God rest on these children to save them and to form them into a community of saints and Disciples, the same hands that created life in the beginning now rest on these children to give them new life. The same hands that will soon be stretched out and nailed to a tree, the cross. Those same hands now rest on these little children. Psalm 136 says, With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, the Lord has redeemed us. These are the hands and arms of everlasting love. The hands and arms of salvation. Gathering up these children and welcoming them into His kingdom. Anyone who thinks that God can't save a child, that God can't save a baby, anyone who thinks that children are beyond the possibility of salvation, really has got the same problem as the disciples. It's a failure to understand the way of salvation. Salvation does not depend upon human abilities, including human cognitive abilities. There's no minimum height requirement for the kingdom. It's not like a ride at Six Flags where you've got to be this tall to enter the kingdom. There's no minimum IQ requirement. All of our salvation is a gift. And God can give that gift, including the gift of faith, even to the youngest of children, even to children in the womb. All throughout Scripture, we see God including the children of His people in His covenant. The covenant is always multi-generational. The kingdom is always multi-generational. You just see this again and again. So for example, in the book of Exodus, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go that they may go out into the wilderness and serve God and feast in His presence. And as the plagues start to pile up, by the time you get to Exodus 10, Pharaoh is a little more willing to negotiate it. So Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let the adults go, but not the children. This, you know, we got to have another generation of slaves. So you guys go, you adults go, but we're going to keep the children back here in Egypt. And Moses says, no deal. If we're going to have a feast with the Lord, the children must be included. 
And then again and again and again throughout Scripture, when God renews covenant with His people, the children are always present. Deuteronomy 21, they gather at the mountain to, to renew covenant with God, and the little ones are there. Same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 31. When God renews His covenant with His people, the little ones are to be present. It's the same later in the book of Joshua, then later on in the book of Ezra. Again and again, you see this. When God's people gather for worship, when they gather for feasting, when they gather for covenant renewal, the children are present. The covenant includes the next generation. The kingdom is multi-generational. We even see how God works in that next generation. He works in children even in their infancy. David in Psalm 22 speaks of the Lord giving him faith even as a nursing infant. He talks about how God was his God even in the womb. Even in the womb, he had a saving relationship with the womb. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb and leapt for joy when his mother drew close to Mary who was carrying Jesus in her womb. 1 Corinthians 7 says our children are holy. Jeremiah says that God chose him and worked in him before he was born. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, He was welcomed by the babbling crazes of little children. And when the high priest and scribes tried to get those exuberant child voices silenced, Jesus quoted Scripture at them. He said, haven't you read that out of the mouths of babes God has ordained praise so that the foe and avenger may be silenced? The children are not going to be Silence. It's the foe and the avenger who will be silenced. In other words, Jesus doesn't just give children a place in His kingdom, but over in the corner. No, Jesus declares these children to be warriors through whom He will conquer His enemies, through whom He will conquer and silence His foe. Psalm 127 picks up on this same thread and calls children arrows in the hands of a soldier or in the hands of a mighty warrior. Children are weapons for battle. Now certainly to be effective in battle, they have to be trained. And in fact, I would say one reason why Christians seem to be losing so many of the battles we're called to fight, particularly what you could call culture war battles, is we are losing our children to the world. The statistics bear this out. Over the last 10 years, as our nation's population has increased roughly 10%, evangelical church membership has declined by about 10%. Twice as many churches close their doors every year as are planted. That would not be happening if the church was keeping her children in the fold. Certainly we want the church to grow through evangelism where we actually reach out to non-Christians and we bring them in. Not all church growth should require nine months' notice. But the principal way God has grown His kingdom through the centuries is through Christians having children and nurturing them in the faith, in the context of the family and the church so that they go on to persevere and bear mature fruit in His kingdom. Evangelism adds thousands to the church, but covenant nurture adds tens of thousands. 
When Jesus says the kingdom belongs to the children of believers, He's not saying our children are saved no matter what they do or how they live. That's not true for adult Christians either. All kingdom members have to persevere in the faith. We have to guard against apostasy, against falling away. We have to keep on pursuing Jesus and following Jesus. But that's really why covenant nurture is so important. We have to take these arrows God has given us and we have to sharpen them and straighten them and then string our bow with them and fire them into the enemy. And so I think while this passage in Mark 10 doesn't answer every question about parenting that comes up, for that we'd have to go to the rest of Scripture, I do think that this passage presses on us, it especially presses on Christian parents a very practical question, and that is this. What does covenant nurture look like? If my children belong to the kingdom of God, if they're disciples of Jesus, what does it look like practically for me to nurture them? How can I nurture my children so they will mature into faithful and fruitful and wise citizens of Christ's kingdom as they grow up. How can I help my children grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord? So I want to throw some things out here for you. First, I think it's vital for moms and dads to love each other. How do you nurture your children in the faith? First and foremost, mom and dad have to love each other and keep their marriage balanced. Again, there is a reason why this section follows a section on divorce. The weakest are hurt the most by divorce. Children are deeply damaged by parents who refuse to repent of their sin and who commit to making their marriage work. Children learn all about love, honor, commitment, covenant keeping, respect by watching their parents. The home should be the setting or the environment within which children learn about the love of God. But a broken marriage, the kind of thing Jesus addresses in the beginning of Mark chapter 10, or a miserable marriage where the parents simply don't deal with their sin as husband and wife against each other, that kind of environment in the home prevents our children from learning about the love of God. Broken families hurt children. It's tragic that today children are more likely to have a pet in the home than a father. That's a tragedy. Now certainly God can and does compensate for broken homes. God is merciful. God's omnipotent mercy can compensate for any situation, no matter how difficult or disastrous. But we need to recognize those situations for what they are. And if you're committed to nurturing your children in your faith, the first thing you need to do is be committed to your spouse. Loving and respecting your spouse. That love and respect between husbands and wives is key. It creates the right kind of atmosphere within the home for the faith of the children to flourish. That's the first thing. Second thing is, children must be received as blessings. The church should be a place where fruitfulness is loved and embraced. Where children are loved and embrace. They're not seen as a nuisance, but as 
a blessing. This is what Martin Luther said in his typical crass way. He said, people who do not like children are swine, dunces, and blockheads, not worthy to be called men and women. So Luther's saying, if you don't like kids, you're a blockhead. It's interesting to me that uh, C.S. Lewis, in a rather uh, candid moment in, in, in something he wrote, admitted that he really didn't care much for little children. But he also admitted that that was a defect in him. That was a flaw in his character. Not something that was just okay. It was a problem. Something that needed to be remedied. Uh, I already made reference to Psalm 127 where children are described as arrows in the hands of a soldier. Psalm 127 goes on to say, Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, to have a quiver full of arrows with which to do battle against the enemy. That's a blessing. Psalm 128 describes children as a blessing given to the godly, God-fearing man. It describes the children as olive plants gathered around his table. And of course, the olive uh, tree is, uh, is really the tree of the covenant. It's the holiest tree in this whole system of tree symbolism that Scripture gives us. The olive tree is used to represent the covenant people of God. Children are like olive plants, full of the olive oil of God's Spirit. That's a blessing. Many in the ancient world, as in today's world, saw children as liabilities. It's just another mouth to feed, another body to clothe. Hopefully they'll grow up to to become useful, but right now they're not really worth anything. That's not the biblical view. The world may say the children are worthless, at least until they get older. Scripture shows us they are treasured gifts. Their real value is not going to show up on a spreadsheet, but they do have great worth and value. In the ancient world, unwanted children would be left out to die. Sometimes they'd be, they would be picked up. You know, these children who were left out, who were exposed. Sometimes those children would be picked up and and raised as slaves or as gladiators, or they'd be mutilated so they they could become beggars, whose money then, of course, would just be taken. When Christians rescued these children left out to die, they would take them into their family. And they would raise them in the faith. The kingdom of God has always been a place of warm welcome for children, whether biological or otherwise. Even today, Christians are far more likely to have larger families and to rescue orphans and to do foster care. We are pro-children because we see children as a blessing. But, and here's the third point, We need to understand that children are not an unconditional blessing. Enjoying children as blessings depends in good measure on faithfully nurturing them, training them. So the prophet Samuel, to give you an example, the prophet Samuel had two sons. He did not discipline his sons. He did not restrain his sons. They grew up to be wicked judges who perverted justice and who took bribes. Now, was Samuel blessed by his children? Was he blessed by his sons? Would Samuel have been more blessed if he had had three or four or five unfaithful sons than just two? No. In Samuel's case, the blessings devolved into curses. And so what must we do? 
we want to be faithful Christian parents, we must take up the tools God has given us. Primarily, the twin tools of teaching and discipline so we can cultivate the faith of our children. We have to be disciplinarians. To be a parent is to be a disciplinarian. Now, harsh discipline is going to exasperate your children. No discipline at all will also exasperate your children. Loving, consistent discipline will bless your children. Harsh discipline is going to crush the spirit of your child. No discipline at all is going to put responsibilities on your child. He's not yet ready to bear and will also crush him. But when it's loving Discipline consistently administered within a relationship of love and service in a home full of love and joy, that kind of discipline is effective. It blesses your children. Being a disciplinarian also means putting a filter on the world's garbage so it just doesn't stream into your home. And so it doesn't drown out the voice of truth for your children. We don't want the culture's lies to speak more loudly than the voice of truth. We're speaking and the church is speaking to them. Deuteronomy 6 describes this whole process, especially the teaching process. It commands you as a parent to teach your child really as a 24-7 kind of job. Teach your children when you sit, when you walk along the way, when you lie down. Put the law of God on your hand to govern all you do, on your forehead to govern all that you think. Put it on your doorpost to govern your family life. Put it on the city gates to govern public life. Our children should grow up in an environment saturated with the Word of God. We are continually, formally and informally, teaching them God's truth. Ephesians 6 is really the New Covenant version of this. It commands fathers to raise up their children in the training and admonition of the Lord. That word training there is the word paideia. We can't really totally capture it with any English word. It's so comprehensive. Basically what it describes is a process of enculturating your children into a whole way of life. Prepping them for life in a Christian civilization. It's the kind of holistic training. Everything from the kind of academic subjects that you get in formal education to things like manners and and common courtesies to teaching them the whole counsel of God. That's what it means. That's the paideia. That's, That's the training of the Lord. Genesis 18 is an interesting passage. In Genesis 18, God says to Abraham, you have been chosen in order that you might teach your children the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. Parents, that's your task. God has chosen you for it. He has chosen you to teach your children righteousness and justice. That's your job description as a parent, to impart God's ways, God's righteousness, God's justice to your children. And of course, then we have the book of Proverbs. We have a whole book of fatherly instruction for children that covers pretty much everything children need to know in order to grow up faithfully. It's all about discipline. It's about sex. It's about work. It's about friendships. It's about gossip. It's about money. It's about alcohol. Pretty much every issue your children will face, everything they will encounter, is addressed there in the book of Proverbs. 
Proverbs is a father lovingly and authoritatively teaching his children God's ways. Parents, that's your job. To lovingly and authoritatively teach your children God's truth. Parents, notice this. Notice this in the Gospels. In this story, but also elsewhere in the Gospels. Jesus blesses children many times in, in many different ways. Here He takes them into His arms and blesses them. In other cases, He heals sick children. He exercises demon-possessed children. He even raises dead children. But if you look at all of those stories where Jesus ministers to children in the Gospels, what you will find every single time is that parents are present and involved and in fact even instrumental in obtaining Jesus' blessing for their little ones. Parents provide the context or the atmosphere within which Jesus blesses children. It's your prayers, your discipline, your instruction Jesus is going to use. To bless your children. Even your faith can't procure benefits for your children. It's really, I think, a lot like what happens in Mark chapter 2 with the paralytic. He can't get himself to Jesus, so his friends bring him to Jesus. And the text says when Jesus saw their faith, he healed the man, he healed their friend. Parents, when Jesus sees your faith on their behalf, he blessed your children. So parents, you must not abdicate. You must not abdicate your responsibilities. And you must see that you are God's instrument for bringing blessing to your children. But that really brings us to yet another point that needs to be made here. Part of bringing your children to Jesus is bringing them to church. If you want your ministry to your children to be effective, you need to have them in church. And you need to be training them to be faithful worshipers, understanding the ways in which the liturgy forms them. And I know that that can make Sundays very hard to train little ones. It's sometimes going to mean you've got to do discipline on a Sunday morning. I know we did with our kids as they were growing up. And that is hard work. But the goal is not just to have children who sit still through church, as wonderful as that is. The goal is to have children who understand they are part of God's royal priesthood. They are members of the body of Christ called to participate in the worship of God's people. That's the goal. That's what we're aiming for. I want you to think about something here. You know, the parents in this story bring their children directly to Jesus because they lived at a time when Jesus was on earth. How can we do that today? Is it possible for Jesus to touch and bless your children in the same way today? I would say yes, absolutely. And that is what the means of grace are all about. Jesus speaks to and touches and blesses your children through His Word through baptism, through the Eucharist. You want to bring your, ch your children to Jesus? What do you do? Present your children for baptism. Raise them up at the Lord's table. Make sure they hear sound preaching regularly. You might say, it takes a church to raise a Christian. You're not supposed to do it on your own. You do it in the context of the church. Teach your children they belong to God. 
And they belong to God's people. And show them how to live accordingly by the way you live in the community of God's people. Help your children to know they are God's children. They're members of the church. We can say to our children, all God is, is yours. And we can say to our children, all you are, is God's. God belongs to our children. Our children belong to God. We tell our children, look, You've been baptized, and in baptism you entered into God's kingdom. You've been admitted to the fellowship of the Trinity. You have a relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You now bear Christ's name, and you are His disciple. In baptism, Christ bowed Himself to you. Baptism binds you to Christ. You're a member of His body. And so now live accordingly. Learn to live as His disciple. Some people have trouble linking this passage here in Mark 10 with baptism. It's objective. This can't really say anything about baptism because there's no water here. But I do think that there are connections. For one thing, uh, Presbyterians have always said that infant baptism, the practice of infant baptism, rests on the premise that Jesus asserts here. That the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. But there's another link I want you to note here in verse 14. That word translated hinder, do not hinder the children, do not hinder these children from being brought to Jesus. It shows up again and again in baptismal passages in Scripture and even in ancient liturgies of the church. I think echoing this text because this text has influenced the way Christians have thought about baptism from the earliest days. That word hinder there shows up again and again. So in Acts 8.36, the Ethiopian eunuch asks Philip, what is to hinder me from being baptized? We could just as easily say what the Ethiopian eunuch is really saying is what's to hinder me from coming to Jesus, from meeting Jesus in the waters of baptism. Acts 10.47, Peter asks whether anyone can hinder Cornelius and his family from being baptized, even though they're Gentiles. Who is to hinder them from coming to Jesus and meeting Jesus in the waters of baptism? And likewise, we could ask what should hinder us from bringing our children to Jesus in baptism. Baptism is Jesus' way of blessing our children. In baptism, they receive the kingdom and Jesus receives them into His kingdom. Now let's just say, let's just say that you've just had a baby in this congregation. That would not be that unusual. All right, we've got lots of kids and we want to thank God for those children. Let's say you just had a baby. And let's say Jesus decided to make a temporary appearance on earth. Not his final coming, but he just happened to show up. And so now you've got a choice. You can either take your child to Jesus to be blessed, or you could bring your child to me, the pastor to be baptized, which would you choose? I wouldn't be bothered. I wouldn't be offended at all if you chose to take your child to Jesus. But I would say this. Your child would not get any greater blessing from Jesus that way than if you brought your child to the pastor to be baptized. 
The same Jesus who took those children into His arms to touch them and bless them. That same Jesus now works through the waters of baptism. Right now, Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand in heaven. He's not on earth. He's in heaven. But He has not left us without His presence or without access to His blessing. He touches your children and He heals your children and He makes your children part of His family in baptism. Do not hinder your children. Bring them to the waters of baptism for Jesus meets them there. Baptism says the same thing about our children as this passage here says about the children. Jesus loves the little children. Jesus blesses the little children. Jesus gives the kingdom to little children. Jesus makes little children His disciples. The Lord loves your children, so now you are to raise them up in the Lord. Do not hinder them from meeting Jesus in any way. Don't hinder them through inconsistent discipline. Don't hinder them by setting before them a bad example or a hypocritical example. Don't hinder them by failing to take them to church where they meet Jesus in the means of grace every Lord's Day. Don't hinder your children from being around Jesus. And let me close with this. Children, I hope you've been listening, sort of overhearing, as it were, as I've spoken to your parents. But children, I want to say a word to you as well. You children still living in your parents' home. Even as Paul addressed the Ephesian children in his letter to the Christians at Ephesus, and he addressed the children as members of the covenant people of God, I want to address you, the children of this church, in the same way. We've been talking about you a lot, but now I want to talk to you for just a moment. Children, understand, by being born into a Christian home and a Christian church, you have been put in a place of incredible privilege. Incredible privilege. Your parents are so good to you, so kind to you, to bring you to church regularly and faithfully. But if I can borrow a line from Spider-Man, with great privilege comes great responsibility. You need to know your privileges. You need to know Jesus loves you and Jesus forgives you and Jesus receives you and Jesus blesses you. But you also need to know Jesus now calls you to live for Him. To trust in Him and to obey Him. You don't have to do this in your own strength. Jesus has put His Holy Spirit in you to enable you to do these things. And Jesus says to obey your parents in the Lord. And know that when you do so, the Lord is pleased. You kids, I want you to picture yourself in this passage in Mark 10. Now most of you here are listening to me. You're too big to imagine Jesus taking you up into His arms. Okay, so Maybe don't imagine it that way. But imagine Jesus hugging you. Imagine Jesus laying His hands on you. Imagine Jesus looking you straight in the eye and saying, the kingdom of God belongs to you. Imagine Jesus smiling over you. And know that that picture is really true. Don't let anything or anyone hinder you from coming to Jesus because Jesus wants you 
He wants you in His family. He wants you to be a faithful part of His people. Jesus wants you to know who you are and who you are. You are a child of God and you belong to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that Jesus does indeed love children, that He loves children of all ages, all who will admit their powerlessness and their weakness and their helplessness. Father, help us to know this love. Help us to all know we are Your children welcomed into the loving arms of Jesus, the arms of salvation. Father, we know that there is nothing Jesus can't do for us. No sin He can't forgive. No wound He won't heal. Oh, Father, may we all know His touch, His smile, His words of comfort, His everlasting love. May we know that He carries us in His arms through the trials of life and promises to bring us into eternal glory. Oh, Father, even as we know Jesus will always be faithful to us, May we always be faithful to Him. This is our prayer. Amen.